0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 190, House of Wessex. Everybody lies. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Here's a sample of what they're listening to on the members' feed right now. There are a couple other routes that seem to have gone south along a circuitous path through a whole variety of rivers, but eventually they reached the Black Sea and Constantinople. Feel free to look at a map just to take in how far a voyage that would have been. Now, one way would have gone through the Volk of River, and the other one went through the Gulf of Riga, but regardless of which path they took, it was a monster trip. And once in Byzantium, they would trade fur, walrus ivory, and any other northern treasures that they had in exchange for silk, jewelry, wine, and fine goods that were harder to obtain in the north. You also had Scandinavian warriors and assorted vikinger bands who would follow those same routes and then hire their services out to anyone who was looking for some thugs. Some of them would eventually become the Varangian guard. If you'd like to hear more and would like to support the show, you can do so over at the thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Trish, Terry, and I'm not making this up, Catherine Bigelow, who I'm assuming is the same person who made the greatest surfer heist movie of all time. Buddy, this is your f***ing wake-up call, man. I am an FBI agent. <laughs> Classic. All right, this is going to be a longer one, and it will hopefully make up for the fact that it's a bit late because I was wrecked by a Mankey steak and kidney pie. But before we begin, we need to fix something. I've avoided doing this for years, literally years now, but I'm getting increasing numbers of emails regarding this subject, so it needs to be addressed. Many moons ago, I took a history course that had an unexpected, long-lasting impact upon me. My professor, almost as an aside, spoke about King Athelbert of Kent. Being the kind of dork I am, my ears perked up, and I listened intently. This was the first time I'd heard that name spoken out loud, and her pronunciation stuck with me. I didn't question it, and I assumed it was correct. She was a professor. She had a podium. So, for nearly two decades, Athelbert was Athelbert as far as I was concerned. Then, about six months after I began Season 2, I started receiving emails and the emails haven't stopped. They say things like A-E should be pronounced like the A in cat. It should be Athelbert, not Athelbert. And just to muddy the waters, some have also written in saying A-E should be actually pronounced eh, like Ethel. My guess about the reason why we have disagreement on this is that we don't have a recording of how these people spoke. Typically, ancient pronunciation has to be reverse-engineered by looking at poetry, which is a fascinating subject that I might have to get into at a later date. But I don't think that poetry is going to save me here. Now, because there were multiple factions around pronunciation and they disagreed with each other, I was just hoping I could wait out the clock since we only have so many of these old-fashioned names left. But no dice. You guys are both rigorous in your research and also diligent in your email writing. And the only thing that everyone can seem to agree on is that it isn't a hard A. So here's what we're going to do. From this point on, I'm just going to start saying A-E like it's the A in cat. Athelbert. The Ethel Acolytes will no doubt hate this as well, but I got to pick a side here. I'm sorry, everyone. Now, with that bit of business out of the way, onto our show. This episode is going to be a bit different from most because I'm gonna be addressing something which has been bugging me about the 800s, and Wessex in particular. I feel like I haven't been doing a good job pointing something out, so I'm gonna explain something crucial about the House of Wessex and Alfred the Great that most of you, unless you have a PhD in Anglo-Saxon history, or obsessively read dense scholarly books on the era, will have never heard before. I've tried to do my best to explain how Britain was in chaos during this period, It was racked with internal and external pressures, and it was in a pretty rough spot. But what I haven't talked about is that the stories that were told by the scribes, who were some of our only sources for this period, seem to imply a surprising level of tranquility in Wessex. Looking at these sources, we're given the sense that this kingdom is an outlier for this period. The scribes tend to concede that sure, There was that brief dust-up between father and son over Judith, and there were occasional fights with the Scandinavians. But overall, things were stable and peaceful. The House of Wessex was largely a mature and reasonable household that was up for the challenge posed by the Northmen. This should strike us all as pretty odd. The image is in conflict with what we've been seeing across the channel, and what was happening in every other kingdom on the island. We know that these places were in constant chaos, often self-inflicted chaos. And we hear about those issues from some of our written sources, but not all of them. It's an uncomfortable thing for historians to have major sources in conflict with other records. And when reading articles and books, you can see them struggling with this issue, where they don't know if they're missing a critical part of the story. But there's a reason for why here, in this time period, our sources are telling two different stories. The story of chaos and strife is consistent throughout multiple types and kinds of records. But the piece of maturity story only comes from two. And that gives the impression that we're not getting the full story in the Chronicle or in Asser's writings. Not only that but we're going to discover as we delve deeper into these materials that it looks like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They'll report things that almost certainly would lead to massive amounts of dynastic conflict in the South, and then provide accounts that give the impression that everyone was chummy and working together. And I suppose it is possible that's what happened, and that there was an uncommon degree of selflessness and emotional stability among this group. But I really doubt it. These were the same people who had a rebellion over queen judith only a few years earlier the story of the nobility from this period is largely the story of a bunch of traumatized teenagers trying to deal with a bunch of traumatized adults the idea that everyone would suddenly abandon their ambitions or their completely reasonable fears of their rivals seems unlikely thus the I don't think we're being given the full story by Asser or the Scribes working on the Chronicle. And that raises the question of why? And what is the whole story? Well, we're going to try and work that out right now. Let's start with the why question, which is the easier one. Why would the Chronicle and Asser tell us a story of peace while everything else suggests chaos? And I do want to make this very clear. They're not saying everything was completely at peace it just seems a hell of a lot more peaceful than it actually would have been. And they do imply a certain degree of internal stability that seems kind of striking when you look at what was going on in the kingdom. So, why would they tell us that story? Probably because a mostly peaceful kingdom with a stable, mature nobility sounds great. Given the current state of politics in many of our countries, I think a lot of us today would sign up for that deal. A peaceful kingdom watched over by a benevolent and wise king and his equally wise heirs is exactly the sort of story that you'd want to tell people if you were trying to convince them to unify behind your house. We're the leaders you're looking for. Trust us. Join us. Read Asser and the Chronicle long enough, and you'll start to catch the smell of varnish. I've mentioned this multiple times, and I'm going to keep repeating it until you can never forget it these are not historical records they're spin we're trying to reconstruct a society using the press releases of a political campaign this is not the truth not the whole truth anyway consequently a lot of scholars as well as your humble podcaster suspect that there was a great deal of spin in our two main sources the various versions of the chronicle and asser as a result of all this spin we need to look between the lines and look in charters and in records that weren't written down by those under the thumb of the House of Wessex. If those records reinforce what we're told by Asser, then no smoke, no fire. But if they don't reinforce the party line, what then? Well, as it turns out, when we look deeper into the records, we discover that it wasn't peaceful and grown up at all. There's a great deal of dynastic tension that was brewing. And it was made worse by the degree of pressure being placed upon the kingdom by Vikinger armies. One of these things was largely out of their control. The Northmen had discovered just how much they could gain by invading southern lands. And they weren't going to stop now. There was a time when the Christian West might have been able to stop it, but that time had passed. Now, the only option was to do what was necessary to try and weather the storm. But the other thing the dynastic issues, those were thoroughly under their control. And frankly, at least one part of it was specifically the fault of Athelwolf. I know I usually speak positively when talking about how Egbert and his son Athelwolf handled the kingdom. And overall, they were quite smart in what they did. But in a few key issues, there were unforced errors. I would say the biggest mistake made by King Athelwulf even bigger than marrying a Frankish child bride and triggering a civil war, centered around the issue of succession. I know, I spoke glowingly about how incredible it was that there was a peaceful transfer of power from father to son, and that was quite an achievement. So if you're baffled by the fact that I'm now taking issue with how he handled succession, just stick with me. It all comes down to Athelwulf's will. We're told that this will stated that Athelwulf's lands and, according to York and several other scholars, the throne of Wessex, were to pass to his sons in succession, except for Athelbert, who already had Kent. And this will also made no provision for grandsons. The problem with this succession plan is that it sets up a system where Athelwulf's youngest son would always inherit, not the sons of any of his older sons. So that functionally means that unless Alfred died before his brothers, the ultimate king of Wessex would always be Alfred. Any future grandsons of Athelwulf's were out of luck. The kingdom would be Alfred's, eventually. So for example, if the current king of Wessex, King Athelbald, had a whole bunch of sons with Queen Judith, according to the will, after Athelbald died, his brother Athelred would inherit, not any of his sons. And if Athelred had a ton of sons, it still wouldn't matter, because after he died, Alfred would inherit. And it really wouldn't matter how many sons Athelbald or Athelred had before Alfred took the throne, because those kids didn't have a place in the line of succession. Essentially, the older brothers and their heirs were just placeholders for Alfred's eventual rule, and so their kids were irrelevant. And then the instructions stop. Which suggests that Alfred's nephews, even after Alfred dies, will still be out of luck, because Alfred could bequeath his kingdom to his own sons and disinherit his understandably grouchy nephews. So Athelwolf's will basically states, by virtue of the logic of this type of succession, that only Alfred and his direct line mattered. They were predestined to rule under this scheme. Unless, of course, he died before his brothers did. And if this really was the plan, that was probably likely to happen sooner rather than later. He was sick and young, and he had battle-hardened brothers, at least one of whom who was willing to launch a civil war against his own family for the throne. You do the math. Do you really think that Alfred, who was probably about nine years old when this will was enacted, would last all that long? If you were a royal father, and you wanted to set up a system that ensured that your sons would go to war with each other, either in battle or just in court, this would be the succession plan that you drew up. It's a crazy system. Now maybe Alfred being the heir to the kingdom was the plan all along, and Athelwulf didn't consider the fratricidal possibilities. But it's still hard to believe. Athelwulf had a ton of kids, are we really supposed to buy the idea that he was super attached to his sickly, late-in-life son to such an extent that he was boxing out his other sons? I mean, Alfred was still just a child when Athelwulf died. And meanwhile, Athelwulf had fought shoulder-to-shoulder with some of his other sons. They were brothers in arms. So really? Alfred is your guy? I just don't buy it. I have a hard time believing Athelwulf was that foolish. And your skepticism should grow when you absorb the following facts. We don't have a copy of Athelwolf's will. In fact, we only hear about this via ex parte statements by Alfred's own will. It's mighty convenient that the guy who ultimately would commission these records of the will also happened to be the person who benefited from the succession scheme. It's also convenient that our other main source for the political dealings within Wessex from this period were under West Saxon control and included suspect tales of how Alfred was consecrated as king by the Pope himself when he was about four years old, or maybe when he was nine. Honestly, it's all a bit dodgy and depends on what you're reading. But regardless of how old he was, those tales agreed that Alfred was consecrated as king. And a myth like that would reinforce the sense of inevitability for Alfred and his line's rule, even if they weren't true, which they almost certainly weren't. He may have gone to Rome, but as for the rest, he might as well have claimed to be Iron Man. And yet here we are, with Alfred saying, Did you know my father wrote a will that gave me and my kids everything? No, you can't see it, it's private. Changing the subject for a minute, have I ever told you about the time when the Pope consecrated me as a king when I was still a child? (laughs) Boy, that was one crazy summer. What? Yeah, my brothers were still alive. They were ruling as kings, actually, but they didn't mind. We've always been very close, and they knew their place. Bullshit. Not only is it entirely unbelievable, but it also runs counter to the rest of the story we're being told. Because if it's true, and this really is how the will was set up, then I seriously doubt we should trust the peaceful bucolic image we're often given. Someone is lying about something here. You can't have it both ways. If Alfred is telling the truth about the will, then Greater Wessex, meaning Kent and Wessex combined, would have been a powder keg of dynastic intrigue. Think about it. King Athelbert of Kent was probably already a bit distrustful of his older brother, thanks to that whole rebellion thing, not to mention the whole creepy marriage deal. And under this succession plan, he was probably wary of, or at least concerned for, his younger brothers. Meanwhile, King Athelbald of Wessex was likely keeping a close eye on his younger brothers for fear of future assassination attempts or a coup and he was probably also trying to figure out what he'd do if queen judith got pregnant since athelbald would no doubt want his own kids to inherit and his brothers would be an obstacle to that from his perspective his brothers might have to take one for the team on the flip side the younger brothers meaning athelred and alfred were probably trying to figure out what they could do to prevent Athelbald from having any sons, because his children would have the potential to disinherit them both thanks to Judith and her magical womb. So my guess is that anyone worth their salt was at least seeking support from their brother, King Athelbert of Kent. And of course, his Kentish warbands. You know, just in case. This had civil war written all over it. It's just astoundingly bad decision-making, and thus, the question left to us, and it's a largely unanswered question, is whether this was a personal mistake, or whether it was the result of cultural incentives and pressures. Was Athelwulf failing to think things through, or was the issue baked into the cake because the House of Wessex had already sown the seeds of its own destruction? Basically, was he just carrying out his duties as defined by his culture, and he had little choice but to set up succession in that manner? It's all too easy to say, ugh, that king was an idiot. But sometimes, the actions made by leaders say more about the restraints of their culture than they do about the king's intelligence. It doesn't change how things play out, but it's something to think about with regard to how we judge someone's actions. Or, and this is the big one, maybe it wasn't bad decision-making at all. Because maybe it didn't play out the way we're told, and Athelwolf didn't set things up this way. And this is where I tend to lean. Was someone lying to us about this will? And since the source really is one person, did Alfred the Great lie to us? It's a tough question. Because for British history dorks, it's a bit like discussing whether or not your beloved grandparent was also a racist. That's no fun. No one wants to have that conversation. And so the instinct is to ignore the weird comments and just move on with your life. But that's not what we do here at the BHP. So that was point number one that I've been neglecting in the show, and I wanted to make crystal clear in this episode. It's possible that it wasn't just Asser and other allies of Alfred who were lying to us. Rather, Alfred himself might have lied to us. Directly, in his will. The second big mistake that King Athelwolf of Wessex made, well, probably made, was that he also failed to keep his kingdom unified. We're told in the record that the territory of Kent went to his third son, Athelbert, and then Wessex went to his second son, Athelbald. Now the system that was set up by Egbert had Kent as a training kingdom for the heir apparent, and that kept the kingdoms functionally unified. But here, King Athelbert of Kent was cut out of the dynastic succession scheme, meaning that Kent was no longer linked as strongly as it had been before. Greater Wessex was now being fragmented, and Kent was more of a sub-kingdom than an annexed province. Probably. Probably but maybe not. Here's the problem with all this. We will see later that King Athelbert of Kent was still kind of part of the succession scheme, even though Alfred made no mention of it. And he would actually go on to hold Wessex and Kent together, at least for a time, unifying Greater Wessex. So knowing that, we're left wondering, well... Was King Athelbert of Kent going against his father's wishes and inserting himself in the line of succession for Wessex? Or are we being lied to somewhere? And Greater Wessex was never fully intended to be fragmented in this crazy succession scheme. You see what I mean about this? There's just something that isn't right. And it's hard to say exactly what was going on there, but based at least upon the weird reports we're getting in the Chronicle, and in Asser and Alfred's Will, It seems that Kent and Wessex were split, at least for a time, and they had their own succession schemes that didn't overlap with each other. Consequently, if we believe these sources, Kent was no longer just a title bump provided to the heir apparent. And if that is true, it's a huge problem, especially in a time when they're under military threat, because it potentially splits up the power block that they've been working very hard to consolidate. The two kingdoms could still work together, of course, but once the split happened, it was no longer a guarantee. Any unified Kent-Wessex actions would rely entirely on the brothers agreeing to work together, something that no one should count on considering how that will was arranged. But again, if this is true, and it really is a big if, this situation might have been more the fault of Anglo-Saxon culture than specifically Athelwolf or none of it ever happened because our records might actually just be self-serving lies coming out of Alfred's camp, at least regarding the two kingdoms and Athelbert's place in the line of succession. As for the peace that the records seem to imply with only occasional raids, well, the truth probably remains that life in Britain was anything but peaceful. The other primary sources available to us the legal land charters, that sort of thing, they're telling us a story of a people who were absolutely under siege. That's something that I've tried very hard to make clear as we've talked about this period. But the part that I think I've failed to illuminate is that from these records, we can also see how the nobility were quick to exploit that situation to their advantage. And that might be why Asser and the Chronicle keep suspiciously quiet about it when it comes to Wessex. As you probably noticed in the story monasteries were a favorite target for the Scandinavians going a Viking. And for good reason. They tended to be wealthy, poorly defended, and occupied by people who were either religiously opposed to violence or too drunk to effectively hold a weapon. Either way, if you wanted a get-rich-quick scheme in the 9th century, looting a monastery was towards the top of your list. Consequently, a lot of these monasteries appear to have been getting attacked. Not all the attacks were recorded in the Chronicle, clearly, but the attacks do appear to have been ongoing. And here's the part that is definitely left out of the Chronicle. The local nobility was swooping in and taking control of the monasteries after they were attacked. This wasn't a humanitarian effort either. The nobles weren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts to protect the poor monks and the local villagers. This was about the money. Even after the plundering, monasteries were still very wealthy institutions. The wealth of a monastery didn't just lie in its relics and treasures. It was also in its lands. Those were lands that the nobles had been trying to wrestle away from the monks for generations. The power struggle between the nobility and the church had a long and sordid history. And it looks like in the 9th century, members of the nobility saw their chance to seize what they'd been wanting for so long. Let me paint you a picture of how this probably went down. We have Brother Unferth. He was one of the few surviving members of his monastery, probably because he had the good sense to sprint away as soon as he saw a bearded ginger cresting the hill. But just because he was still breathing doesn't mean that life for Brother Unferth was all wine and roses. For the last several days, he's been tending to the wounded, clearing away the dead, and trying to repair what damage he could. And then over that same hill comes an athling from the Shire just down the way. And this fancy little shit has a warband with him. A warband that Brother Umferth really could have used a couple days ago. And now athling athled**k is declaring that the monastery is under his personal supervision and that his warband will protect it. It's not like Umfirth can say no. And even if he could refuse, he probably wouldn't. Because what if the raiders returned? But at the same time, the monastery was losing its lands, its independence, and virtually everything else in the process. They would be at their new lord's mercy, which is not a position a monk would want to be in. After all, one of the reasons they were given separate lands in the first place was because local lords had a habit of looting monastic lands with the sort of efficiency that you'd expect out of a practiced raider. But it's not like they had any better options. So the monks, unsurprisingly, buckled, and we see monasteries rapidly coming under secular control. From what we can see in the records, this behavior is most common in the territories of Kent and Wessex, with lands not just passing to local nobles, but also to the kings themselves. Kings who were part of the House of Wessex. It's an awful situation, and it's not exactly an inspiring tale either. And of course... The Chronicle leaves it out. Instead, we just see hints of what was going on in land charters and other records. These land charters are what starts to fill out the truth for us about life in southern Britain for the nobility, and what it meant to be part of the House of Wessex. Unscrupulous opportunism was key to their success. As for why Asser and the Chronicle only seem to report occasional attacks rather than all of them, we're just left to speculate on that. However, I'm sure that limited information did play a role. You can only report what you've either seen directly or heard of. And if you're a scribe, then you're probably mostly hearing from nobles and religious people. If a small village that no one cares about gets hit, then the scribes might never hear about it. I can also imagine that there might be a strategic element to this as well. Like we spoke about last episode, it's useful to have an enemy that unifies the people but I would guess that you'd want to carefully balance how much information you give. If the nobles, who are generally the major audience for the chronicle, hear about too many attacks, they might start to feel like this was a lost cause. Similarly, if the record focuses on a lot of losses, I would imagine that it would risk dropping everyone's morale. Like I said, this last bit is pure speculation, but if I was building a chronicle... I probably want to focus on the evil deeds done by my enemies, my family's victories over those same enemies, and generally give a sense of, this is bad, but not awful. And don't worry, because I got this in hand. And that does seem to be the tone the Chronicle takes, since the House of Wessex seemed to be kicking the hell out of the Scandinavians. There are so many victories recorded in it, when compared with other kingdoms, that earlier historians tended to talk about the remarkable military abilities of the House of Wessex. These scribes knocked it out of the park so well that even hundreds of years later, you had bookish nerds sitting in history classes thinking, Whoa, the House of Wessex is cool. For the most part, it was only later historians who started to say, Wait a minute. Why are we believing this stuff without question when we know that these West Saxon scribes had a dog in the fight? So, to bring it all back around, was Wessex as peaceful and stable as it seems in the Chronicle? Were the brothers able to freely move around without fear of each other or the Scandinavians? Were they working together for the greater good? I doubt it. And many scholars doubt it, too. Because if we look at all the records and we believe what Alfred and his allies tell us, we begin to see significant problems in the south. We have a new king of Wessex, an independent Kent, a poorly thought-out succession system, brewing dynastic tensions, and the nobility enriching themselves in the chaos, while also building a myth that bolsters the perceptions of the greatness of their house. And frankly, if it wasn't for that very last part, I wonder if we'd all be speaking Danish right now. Because based on those records, the House of Wessex, despite its earlier brilliance with dynastic matters, seemed to be on a collision course with civil war thanks to some astoundingly foolish moves. Unless someone was lying to us. And personally, I suspect that is exactly what was happening. And I think the liar-in-chief was Alfred. But before we burn him in effigy, consider what he was dealing with. And we're going to talk a lot more about this as we go forward in this story, because it's fascinating stuff. But for now, here's what you need to know about what he was dealing with. He had a population that was likely right on the breaking point, and maybe even considering siding with the Scandinavians if it would just bring an end to all the bloodshed. He was the youngest son of an old king who was long dead, and who was almost certainly never intended to rule. And everybody who mattered would have known it. He was sickly bookish and pretty much the opposite of what an anglo-saxon king was supposed to be in this era he was watching all of anglo-saxon britain collapsing and he needed to find a way to convince the people to side with him and unify not just within wessex but all throughout the english kingdoms he needed to be the once and future king and he couldn't just say something like i am descended from woden he'd have to go about it in a manner that was more palatable to Christian ears. So, we read of popes, wills, and victories, and it starts to sound a bit like this sickly kid was the result of divine providence. It starts to sound like the sort of leader that the kingdom needed, a leader chosen by God, appointed by the highest authority to defeat the pagan hordes. It's an inspiring, almost messianic tale, and inspiring tales were exactly what was needed. So it's easy to lambast him for issuing what we would call today propaganda. But what else was he supposed to do? He was on the ropes. And as we go forward in this story, we're going to discuss just how on the ropes he and the Kingdom of Wessex was. But yeah, I also think he was a bit of a liar. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. And why don't you join us on Twitter? We're at British Podcast, and you can find all kinds of other communities in the upper right-hand corner of our site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. All right, pub quiz number 16. You know the drill. Question 1. Ragnar Lothbrok has many legendary deeds, but one of them focused on how he won Thora, Heart of the Town. What did Ragnar do that impressed Thora and her father so much? Question 2. In 845, we're told of a northern warrior named Ragnar who sieged Paris and generally caused all manner of havoc. Now there was a Frankish king who was ruling that area at the time, and he actually tried to muster a defense. But he failed miserably at it. Name that king. Question three. When King Athelwolf of Wessex was probably around 54 years old, he and his wife, Osberga, had a son. Pretty late in life son, to be honest. He was small, sickly, and they named him Alfred. What does Alfred mean? Question four. At about 848 or 849, Prince Wigstan, Grandson of old King Wiglaf of Mercia, was murdered by Prince Bertfrith, the son of new King Bertwolf of Mercia. Why was he murdered? And for a second point, what was the real issue that Wigstan and Bertfrith were focused on? Question 5. King Egbert of Wessex was responsible for reorganizing and modernizing the way his court operated. In fact, much of the later successes of the House of Wessex can be linked to the changes that he made in how his kingdom functioned. For one point each. One, where did he probably get those ideas from? And two, what was the circumstance that made that possible? Question six. In the mid 9th century, we hear of a major naval victory secured by the West Saxons. They were fighting a massive Scandinavian fleet off the coast of Sandwich. This is the first recorded naval battle in English history. The very first one. And they defeated the Vikings and even captured a bunch of their ships. The West Saxon fleet was led by two men, Dukes Eilhera, and who else? Who was the other person that secured the first English naval victory in history? Question seven. One of our major sources for history during this period is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The original manuscript was almost certainly written in what kingdom? Question 8. Remember that time when Athelwolf, who was elderly at this point, decided that it was a good idea to marry a 12-year-old Frankish girl and proclaim her Queen Judith? What happened after that? And as a bonus point, what creepy thing was done during the wedding? Question 9. While most of our sources are focused on the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and thus, a lot of this show is focused there as well right now, they weren't the only game in town. In fact, the Welsh had dealt with the Viking threat on several occasions themselves. However, the Northmen never penetrated much farther than Anglesey, thanks to the actions of Rodri Maurer. What does Rodri Maurer mean? Question 10. Asser talks about how Alfred would go on to become, quote, king over the whole English people, except that part that was under Danish rule, end quote. Obviously, the statement implies a great deal of trouble with the Danes, but there is another issue that Alfred no doubt had to contend with before he could become quote, king over the whole English people, except that part that was under Danish rule, end quote. What was that issue? Question 11. Recently, we've been talking about how Alfred, Asser, and his allies were all probably engaged in myth-building. In fact, some scholars even argue that the main reason why Alfred the Great was great was because he told us that he was. What was the likely reason for why he might have been doing this? Question 12. Around a month ago, I told you about how the Vikings joined with the Cornish and attacked Wessex. And I commented how that was a grim way to start the year. There was a really obscure pun in there. What was that pun? Okay, let's see how you did. Question 1. Ragnar Lothbrok has many legendary deeds, but one of them focused on how he won Thora, Heart of the Town. What did Ragnar do that impressed Thora and her father so much? He killed the giant snake that was holding her dowry hostage. Question 2. In 845, we're told of a northern warrior named Ragnar who sieged Paris and generally caused all manner of havoc. Now there was a Frankish king who was ruling that area at the time, and he actually tried to muster a defense, but he failed miserably at it. Name that king, Charles the Bald. Question three, when King Athelwolf of Wessex was probably around 54 years old, he and his wife, Osberga, had a son. Pretty late in life son, to be honest. He was small, sickly, and they named him Alfred, What does Alfred mean? Counseled by the elves. Question four. At about 848 or 849, Prince Wigstan, grandson of old King Wiglaf of Mercia, was murdered by Prince Bertfrith, the son of new King Bertwolf of Mercia. Why was he murdered? And for a second point, what was the real issue that Wigstan and Bertfrith were focused on? The murder happened because Bertfrith wanted to marry Wigstan's mother, and Wigstan said no. And the real issue was the fact that Wigstan's mum was an heiress to a large fortune, and they were fighting over who would ultimately claim that fortune and thus hold dominance and mercy in Mercian politics. Question five: King Egbert of Wessex was responsible for reorganizing and modernizing the way his court operated. In fact, much of the later successes of the House of Wessex can be linked to the changes that he made in how his kingdom functioned. For one point each. One, where did he probably get those ideas from? And two, what was the circumstance that made that possible? He learned them from the court of Charlemagne. And Egbert was there because King Offa forced him into exile when he was just a young prince. Question six. In the mid 9th century, we hear of a major naval victory secured by the West Saxons. They were fighting a massive Scandinavian fleet off the coast of Sandwich. This is the first recorded naval battle in English history, the very first one. And they defeated the Vikings and even captured a bunch of their ships. The West Saxon fleet was led by two men, Dukes Eilhera, and who else? Who was the other person that secured the first English naval victory in history? King Athelstan of Kent. He was the firstborn son of King Athelwolf of Wessex and also the oldest brother of Alfred. Question seven. One of our major sources for history during this period is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The original manuscript was almost certainly written in what kingdom? It was almost certainly written in Wessex. Question eight. Remember that time when Athelwolf, who was elderly at this point, decided that it was a good idea to marry a 12-year-old Frankish girl and proclaim her Queen Judith? What happened after that? And as a bonus point, what creepy thing was done during the wedding? First point. King Athelbald launched a rebellion against his father, Athelwolf. In the second point, Judith's womb was blessed. Question nine. While most of our sources are focused on the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and thus a lot of this show is focused there as well right now, they weren't the only game in town. In fact, the Welsh had dealt with the Viking threat on several occasions themselves. However, the Northmen never penetrated much farther than Anglesey, thanks to the actions of Rodri Mauer. What does Rodri Mauer mean? It means Rodri the Great. Question 10. Asser talks about how Alfred would go on to become quote, king over the whole English people, except that part that was under Danish rule, end quote. Obviously, the statement implies a great deal of trouble with the Danes, but there is another issue that Alfred no doubt had to contend with before he could become quote, king over the whole English people, except that part that was under Danish rule, end quote. What was that issue? A universal English identity wasn't yet a thing. Question 11. Recently, we've been talking about how Alfred, Asser, and his allies were all probably engaged in myth-building. In fact, some scholars even argue that the main reason why Alfred the Great was great was because he told us that he was. What was the likely reason for why he might have been doing this? He was an unlikely heir to the kingdom. He was the opposite of what a powerful Anglo-Saxon king traditionally looked like. His kingdom was in tatters, the dynasty was on the verge of losing support, and most importantly, he needed something to rally the people to his cause. Question 12. Around a month ago, I told you about how the Vikings joined with the Cornish and attacked Wessex. And I commented how that was a grim way to start the year. There was a really obscure pun in there. What was that pun? Grim is another word for Odin. So get it? The Vikings attacking was a grim way to start the year. Alright, I'll see myself out.